Ready. Okay. Wow. Ready. Ready. Okay. Good. All right. So for the past five months now, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in the most recognizable sermon that Jesus ever preached in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I have referred to this as the King's Speech uh, or the Kingdom Manifesto, but Jesus is giving his followers some truths of the kingdom, but he's also letting them know how woefully short we fall um, of God's perfect standard of righteousness. Um, our human efforts really are pretty laughable, right? They're laughable. We try to have righteousness in ourselves. Paul describes it as filthy rags. He's like, everything that I've done in my life, religiously speaking, trying to do it on my own, is like filthy rags. Um, we really desire purity. We want to be clothed in robes of righteousness. But when we try to do it on our own, we look more like pig pen than we do anything else, um, which is the reason why we need a savior. We need somebody to span the gap between our humanness and his holiness. And so Jesus starts taking on hypocrisy. Now, the people of that day, they knew the religious hypocrites, the Pharisees, but it was even worse than they thought because Jesus is going beyond what they did and to their motives. It was more than just what you're doing, but why you're doing it. In particular, Jesus is touching on how we relive our religious lives. Are we just playing at religion or are we really truly seeking relationship? And last week, we left off with talking about what's probably the most commonly committed sin, and that is worry, being anxious. It's tough for us to categorize being anxious as being sinful because we would just say that we are trying to be concerned about something or we are being you know, thoughtful about this situation or that circumstance. But what we're really doing when we're consumed by worry, either about things in the present or things in the future that might happen is we're saying that we don't trust God. Now, we trust him to save our eternal souls, Right? But sometimes we are concerned. We don't trust God to come through for us in a way that we think that he should. And when we do that, we end up standing in fear instead of walking in faith. Uh, I've been watching through some of the uh, episodes of The Chosen again, because uh, there's really nothing to watch on TV. And so I've been watching through some of those again. And there's this one episode in season two where um, a couple of the ladies go to the disciple Philip. Philip's my favorite. I think he's fantastic. He's kind of a hippie. Um, he used to follow John the Baptist, and then he comes over to follow Jesus. And a couple of the women go up to him, and they say, we want to learn some scripture. You know, we want to learn some Torah. What can you, what should we start off with? And he gives them Psalm 139.8. And it says, if I ascend up to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in the depths, in Sheol, you are there. And they're like, is that it? He's like, yeah, that's it. Just take that verse and meditate on it. Take that. Um, sometimes we think we have to memorize like huge portions of scripture. Like we don't even give it a shot because we think, well, I'm going to have to memorize some huge chunk or some huge chapter, but it can be as simple as one little verse. And because it's the word of God, because it's living and active, it's going to have a profound influence on our life. Take this for instance. Let's look at this sentence. God is, this can say two different things, okay? The first thing it can say is God is nowhere, or it can say God is now here. It can say both things. Now, to the world, and unfortunately to a lot of Christians, either by the things they say or the way that they act, they would conclude that God is nowhere, they don't see him acting or they don't believe in him. And so they say, God is nowhere. When I need him, he's not there. 
But as those who follow him, as those who believe in him, and they're not supposed to be worried, not supposed to be anxious, we should be confessing the latter, that God is now here. He is with us, no matter if we're on the mountaintops or if we're on the valley, no matter where we are, if we ascend or if we descend, he is there with us, and we don't need to worry. We don't need to be anxious about anything. So today we enter the final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount covers chapters 5, 6, and 7. So we're starting chapter 7 today, and in case you thought things were going to get a little bit lighter, you would be wrong. Because if you think that worrying is a problem in our culture today, how about being judgmental? That's a little bit of a problem in our culture today, being judgmental. That's our topic. So let's read it together. This is in Matthew 7. We're going to do verses 1 through 6 today. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it'll be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. If the world has a, if the world has a critique or a complaint about the church and Christians in general, it's that we are judgmental, right? You guys are too judgmental. If God is love, then we should be loving, Right? That is what they say of the church. And what they mean by that is that we should be um, open, we should be accepting, we shouldn't offend anyone. Therefore, we should be accepting and as inclusive as possible. After all, that's what Jesus would do, right? Actually, if you read through the Gospels, and even in these last couple chapters we've been going through, there is some judgment taking place. There are some judgmental statements that Jesus makes. So, what is he doing here telling us not to be judgmental? We see all of these times where he is making judgments, pronouncing judgments, even just going through the Sermon on the Mount, and then here Jesus says, don't judge other people. So what's the deal? There have been several religious topics that have been trending on social media the last few weeks. I find these really interesting. Um, the one that was the uh, most recent was Sodom and Gomorrah that was trending uh, on social media. And, um, you know, people that are part of the progressive uh, church explaining the real reason why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It makes for really interesting reading. Okay, but it's interesting to me, it's fascinating that when a world that does not believe in the Bible seeks to justify themselves to what they see as a hypocritical church, they start quoting scripture. Now, they don't believe the scriptures, but they start quoting the scriptures trying to justify themselves. It's interesting reading lots of people with strong opinions on the scriptures that have no love for Christians, I can tell you that. And this portion of scripture that we're going to talk about today gets hurled at you and me at, from the world when they say, don't judge me. You guys aren't supposed to judge. Don't judge me. And this is the verse that they use. Jesus makes a rather proverbial statement here when he says, the standard that you use in judging other people, that's going to be used against you. Now, does he mean that God's going to judge us with that standard? No. God has one standard. And it doesn't move. He doesn't move the lines for anybody. We all come woefully short of God's perfect standard and we can never measure up for it. That's what, um, that's what we know from just reading through the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus here is talking about human relations. Um, one type of judgment that is hypocritical and judgmental and another one that is humble and loving. But in both instances, there's going to be confrontation. 
there's some type of confrontation taking place. And the question continues to be, as it has been throughout the Sermon on the Mount, what's the condition of your heart? What's the condition of your heart when you're going to make judgments on other people? Uh, I think the tragic thing about the Pharisees is that they did truly want to please God. That was where it started. That was a desire that they had. But unfortunately, they had dedicated themselves to this law that was proving to them every single day how difficult, how impossible it was to even be done. They tried to dedicate themselves to it as a way of earning favor with the Lord, but embracing it so tightly, and it was showing them how impossible it was to keep up. That's what's so sad, that they embraced the law instead of the lawgiver. Now, it would be like if I came home and I pull into the driveway and Alicia's there waiting for me, as she always is, right? Okay. And she's waiting there for me and I get out of the car and I walk up to her and then all of a sudden I kneel down on the ground and I start talking to her shadow and I start caressing the shadow and I'm kissing the shadow and Alicia would understandably think that I had lost it because why are you talking to the shadow when I'm right here? But that's what the Pharisees had done. They had taken a picture, a shadow, and embraced that instead of the Lord. They had all these self-made, self-created beliefs that they had modified to suit their own thinking, to suit their own abilities And eventually what happened is that all of their traditions, all of the things that they had made up and added to the law became just as important, if not more so, than the scriptures in their mind and in the minds of the people that day. And as a result, the religious people were oppressively judgmental to anyone who was not in their elite circle. Uh, They became very unmerciful. Uh, They had lost all compassion, all sense of grace when it came to the people who did not keep the law uh, properly. A perfect example of this is in Luke 18. Uh, In Luke 18, verse 9, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, who did Jesus aim this story at? He aimed it at the Pharisees, right? The self-righteous, judgmental, religious people. This would have blown the people's minds that Jesus would have said a tax collector went away justified and the religious person is the one that was condemned. Back then, the common people thought if two people made it into heaven, one would be a Pharisee and the other would be a scribe. If only two people made it in, those were the people that kept the law perfectly, So this would have blown them away, but it also would have lit a fire under the Pharisees, which it did constantly. The self-righteous elite. And of course, we knew what they thought of tax collectors, right? The people who had betrayed their countrymen that were working for the Romans, that were ripping them off and getting rich because of it. And yet it was that one, the tax collector, who saw his need for forgiveness, his need for mercy and repenting sincerely, the one that went away justified. See, when we're judgmental and we try to justify ourselves, justification always goes with condemning others. When we try to justify ourselves in our own deeds, in our own righteousness, it always goes with condemning others. Uh, 
And the only way to do that, only way to make yourself look better, to elevate yourself, is to push other people down. And so in elevating ourselves, we lower everyone else. And that's what our culture hates so much. That's what they hate. Because people, Christians, elevate themselves instead of Jesus. We should be elevating Jesus, but we elevate ourselves. Look how good I am. Look at all the rules I keep. Look at how I go to church. Um, all the things I do externally. And then we have condemnation on those people. And then they use this passage here in Matthew 7 to say that we should never judge anyone for anything. Our culture really hates absolutes. Anything that is an absolute, they hate. Everything has to be open for interpretation. What is your truth? And the progressive church in America, unfortunately, has gotten to the point where it's afraid to confront right and wrong. It's afraid to condemn things that are right and wrong and having those convictions. Instead, they want to talk about being all-inclusive, right? Kind of like a resort, I guess. They want to be all-inclusive. Uh, they don't want to talk about any doctrines that might divide or be disagreeable. And so they put those things on the back of the stove in favor of what they call the higher goal of unity. So because we're after unity, we're going to put these things behind us that people have disagreements about, things that cause divisions, and we're just going to focus on that. We're not going to make any judgments on people. And they will say that, you know, God's kind of a big tent kind of God. He wants all people in. But Jesus said that the gate is narrow. It's not a big tent. It's a narrow gate, right? So here's the tension. We need right doctrine, Right? We need right biblical beliefs that teach us what true holiness is, what true fellowship, and what real unity looks like, and what it's not. And there has to be some judgment on what the Bible says on that topic. It's not full of, of gray areas. The Bible's very black and white. And if you stand up for biblical holiness, you are going to be branded a troublemaker. And people are going to lash out at you. Uh, I mean, just look at the prophets. And Jesus told them, they said, listen, we, you know, God sent you all these prophets. He sent you the word of God, and you guys killed most of them. You guys did not want to hear them. Uh, the people resisted God's messengers. The power of sin is always going to be opposed to God's standard of righteousness. It's always going to be opposed to him. And that's why carnal people, to carnal people, to people of the world, the Bible is always going to be controversial. And they start twisting it to suit their opinions, to suit their preferences and their lifestyles. But if we're going to be um, confrontational, right, the moral reformation always requires conflict. Anytime you want to reform morality, it's going to involve conflict. Clearly, Jesus is calling everyone up to a higher standard in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's pointing out hypocrisy. We have to make some type of judgment, Paul writes in Romans 16, 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught and avoid them. 1 Corinthians 5, 11, he says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. This sounds kind of judgmental, doesn't it? So what's going on here when he tells us not to judge, but we do have to make judgments? These two scriptures right here are two examples of areas where we do need to judge. The first is when someone is teaching false doctrine. If somebody is teaching something that isn't biblical, we do need to make a judgment on that. Paul told the Galatians, we went through the book of Galatians, he told them, he said, if I come back to you and I start teaching you something different than what I gave you the first time, I should be cursed. 
In fact, if an angel from heaven comes to you and he starts teaching you something that's different than what I gave you the first time, he should be cursed. He's actually not an angel. He's a demon. And unfortunately, that's what the Mormons believe. They believe that an angel appeared to John Smith, right? Joseph Smith. Appeared to Joseph Smith. (laughs) Appeared to Joseph Smith. John Smith was a little bit earlier. Okay. All right. Appeared to Joseph Smith. Gave him new revelation on golden tablets that only he could read. Located in New York. Paul said, if anyone comes to you, even an angel, and teaches you something different than I gave you the first time, let him be cursed. Paul says, you have to make a judgment on that person because they are promoting something that goes against the scriptures. That is one area where we can make a judgment. The second is for outward behavior that goes against what the scripture outlines. Uh, This is usually where the pushback occurs, lifestyles. Uh, There are very specific lifestyles that are condemned in the scriptures. Um, We're not condemning people, but we're condemning lifestyles, things that do not line up with what the Bible says. But, and here's the caveat, it's to be done within the church. It's to be done within the church. Jesus is talking about removing a speck from your brother's eye. Removing a speck from your brother's eye, not from someone from outside in the world. We can't judge people in the world because they do not have the same standard. They don't care. They don't care about Jesus. They don't want anything to do with God or his righteousness or his holiness. But inside the church, yes, teaching and lifestyles that go against the word, here's what Jesus says about confronting those believers. Matthew 18 15 through 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. That's judgment. So how do we judge within the church? Well, first we do it personally. We go to that person and we talk to them about it, where they're in error. And if they won't listen to scriptural counsel from us, then we bring in leadership and we talk to them about it. And if they still won't listen to the scriptural direction, then we bring, we get the whole church involved. You guys are looking forward to that, huh? Get the whole church involved. And if that doesn't work, if they still resist what God is saying, then you're supposed to send them out. You say, well, Nathan, that doesn't sound very loving. To not rebuke sin is not an act of love. It's not. In fact, it's a form of hatred. Just like love is an action, hatred is too, and it's neglecting to tell a brother or sister. It would be like having a family member that had a terminal disease and you saying, I don't want to let them know because I don't want to offend them. I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want them to feel bad, so I'm not going to confront them with this bad news. But there's a huge difference between loving correction and unmerciful condemnation. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about unmerciful condemnation. And too often, what the world sees is unmerciful condemnation. And that's what Jesus is talking about today. Unmerciful judgment is forbidden because it shows that we have a wrong view of God. We're going to talk about a couple of these. Unmerciful judgment gives us a wrong view of God, gives us a wrong view of ourselves, and gives us a wrong view of other people. The only one who can truly judge is God. Uh, In one of Jesus' sparring sessions with the Pharisees, uh, he says this to them. This is in John 8. He says, you judge according to the flesh. 
I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Again, lighting a fire under the Pharisees, saying that he and the Father are one, putting himself on the same level as God. Jesus and the Father are the final court. We're not. We're not the final court. We can't judge people's motives. We can't judge their intentions. Only God can do that. When we pass judgment on somebody by our own standards, what we're doing is we're setting ourselves up as God. So we're saying, I'm judging you. I think I know your motives. I'm going to use my standard against you. And when that happens, we set ourselves up in his place. We can refute wrong doctrine and we can refute wrong lifestyles, wrong biblical beliefs, but we're not to judge people outside of the church Inside of the church is where we can make our judgments. But we judge for identification and for restoration. Those are two important points. We judge for identification. Is the doctrine right? And for restoration, do I need to come alongside this brother or sister and help restore them, bring them out of this lifestyle that the Bible says is wrong, but not condemnation? Uh, The night that Jesus was betrayed, they went and had the Passover meal. They went to the upper room. They had the Last Supper. And when Jesus walked into the room, he noticed that all of the disciples had dirty, smelly feet. And I'm not sure what they were thinking because in that day, it was, um, was, you know, what they did as part of their uh, routine is when you walked into a house, you washed your feet. You didn't walk into the house with dirty feet. If you were in somebody's house that had a servant, they would come over and they would wash your feet. They were walking around all day long in sandals, on dirty roads, and through fields. You can imagine how disgusting their feet probably were, and so they washed their feet when they came in. I don't know if the disciples had just gotten too lax, too comfortable with Jesus at that point, but they didn't. And at some point, Jesus gets up, ties a towel around himself, gets the water and the basin, and he just washes his disciples' feet. Jesus didn't condemn the disciples for not washing their feet. Because what I would have done is I would have been like, oh, guys are so disgusting. Guys' feet, don't you guys know when you come into the room, you're supposed to wash your feet. Do I have to do everything for you guys? Stick your feet out. Come on, let me clean them up. But that's not what he did. He just got up and he started washing their feet. All of us have dirty feet. All of us do. Don't point out other people's dirty feet if you're not willing to get down and wash them. Don't point out other people's dirty feet if you're not willing to get down and wash them. If you're not willing to come alongside that person and restore them, don't point out their dirt. You know, it's like one of my old teachers would say, every time you point your finger, you got got three more pointing back at you. Don't judge people if you're not willing to come alongside them. Secondly, unmerciful judgment gives us a wrong view of others. Uh, We think we can view um, others' motives, but we really can't. We can't get into their minds. We can't judge their hearts. We don't have all the facts. We don't want people making judgments about us because you haven't walked in my shoes. You don't know what I'm going through, what I've been through. You don't know how much I've wrestled with this sin in my life. Don't judge me. You don't know where I've been. And we don't want to do that to other people because we don't have all of the facts. Your dirty feet haven't been in my smelly shoes, so don't judge me. We need to be very careful with that. 
In Romans 1, Paul starts listing out all of the depravity of man. He starts going through all of the sins from gossiping to just outright hatred of God. And he's making his way through this. And we talk about Romans 1 a lot as it talks about the spiral that men go through with rejecting God and going through idolatry and all kinds of sexual immorality and where that lands. But in chapter 2, he starts off with a warning. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Man's judgment is imperfect. We don't have all of the details. Only God's is perfect, which he explains in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus." There was a pastor who was on a train and he was traveling back home and he was studying for his Sunday sermon when across the aisle from him was a little two-year-old girl who was throwing an obnoxious tantrum. She was being very loud, very disruptive, and he put up with it for a little bit and then eventually he couldn't take any more and he stood up and he's like, ma'am, control your child. And she said, well, sir, this isn't my child. And he said, well, is is his mother on board? She said, yes, her mother's on board. She's in the cargo department in a casket. And at that point, the humiliated pastor spent the rest of the ride caring for that two-year-old as best he could. He made a judgment on that lady thinking that was the kid's mother. Why can't you get it together? Why can't you keep that in check? It's often what we do with other people. Why can't you get your life in line? Why can't you keep it together? When we don't have all of the details, it gives us a wrong view of others. So unmerciful judgment gives us a wrong view of God, gives us a wrong view of others, and it gives us a wrong view of ourselves. Our eyes, he's talking about specks and logs in our eyes. Our eyes are the most delicate parts of our bodies. Do you know that the fastest human reflex is the eyelid? Your eyelid is the fastest human reflex. I was, um, I was working on Elena's car yesterday and it was, there was a bunch of dirt and stuff like that. And I was trying to blow it out with a blower and I leaned in like this. Now, fortunately, I'm not good about wearing like all the protective equipment, but I was yesterday and I was wearing my goggles and it's a good thing I did because when I blew this stuff out, it all went in my face. And I, as fast as a reflex as your eyelids have, I would not have been able to have blinked fast enough to have kept that out of my eye. But that is your fastest human reflex. And God made it so fast to protect something so crucial, so valuable. And when you have something in your eye, it doesn't matter how big it is. It could be something very small. It could be something very big. It's a major irritation. I have never had something in my eye and thought, you know what? It's not that big a deal. I'll deal with it later. I stop everything I'm doing to get that thing out of my eye. Jesus says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? First, take the log out. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out. The speck that Jesus is talking about here represents sin. 
Uh, We see a brother or sister and we pass judgment on them because of something we see in their lives. And we walk up to them and say, you know what? I just want to have a talk with that person. Just want to have a talk with them about it. Remember, Jesus is addressing self-righteous, judgmental behavior here in this portion of scripture. Notice that the speck and the log are made out of the same material. They're made out of the same material. They both represent sin. You got sin in your life. I got sin in my life. You know what? That's why it makes so easy sometimes to point out sin in other people's lives because I got it in my life too. And so it's easily recognizable. So I point it out in other people's lives. Uh, when David committed his sin with Bathsheba, uh, David, or God told the prophet Nathan to go confront David with it. And so Nathan shows up. This is in 2 Samuel verse, or chapter 12. And he starts telling David a story. He said, hey, listen, David, uh, there were two guys in the kingdom. One's rich, one's poor. And the rich guy, he has all kinds of flocks, all kinds of herd. He's very wealthy. The poor guy, though, he doesn't have anything. Only thing he has is one little lamb that he bought. And he bought this little lamb, and he's raised it up in his family. Like, people didn't keep pets back then, so it's kind of strange. But he has this little lamb, and he's raised it with his kids. He actually feeds this little lamb from his table gives it morsels, gives it drink, drinks out of his cup, sleeps with him at night. It's like one of his daughters. But then one night, a visitor came to the rich man, and he didn't want to take from his flocks to feed this guy. So he went to the poor guy, and he took that one lamb that he had, and he prepared that for this traveler. And David got furious. He got ticked off, and he said, that man deserves to die, and he needs to pay back fourfold for what he took. And Nathan said, you're that guy, David. You're the guy. You are the king. You have access to everything. You, could, you have multiple wives, David. Uriah, he had nothing. He had Bathsheba. That was his wife that was precious to him. And you stole her. You defiled her. Not only that, you killed her husband to try to, you know, try to cover it up. You're the man. And you just pronounced death upon him. By the way, capital punishment was not the crime, was not, was not what they did for somebody who stole something. You didn't die for stealing a sheep. But David, in his fury, in his righteous indignation, said, that man deserves to die. Nathan says, you're it. Exactly right. That's what you deserve, David. And he confessed and um, repented before the Lord. But before we pass judgment on others, we'd better do a real inspection of our lives and deal with the sin in our lives before we go pointing the finger at other people. Because when we have this, the log in our own eye, it's going to give us a wrong view of other people, wrong view of ourselves. Uh, self-righteousness is a sin um, that makes us blind to our own sinfulness. Um, it's actually the sin that Jesus condemned most often in all of his fights with the Pharisees because they were self-righteous and they were constantly judgmental. Uh, like a splinter in your eye. It's going to distort your vision. It's going to make you unable to view that sin in your life. And Jesus says, actually, it's worse than that for you. It's not a speck. It's a log because you're ignoring the sin in your life to go point it out in somebody else's life. Walking up to them saying, you know what? Let me set you straight. Let me get you together here. All the while you have sin going on in your own life. Our criticism of others is usually that they're sinning in a bigger way than we are. You know, I say, don't judge me because you sin differently than I do. And that's usually what we do, as if the size of the sin makes any difference to God. All of it, gossip, adultery, murder, all of it is sin before God. We tend to rank our sins based on how much they affect other people. 
right? This is just my personal. This doesn't affect anyone. This doesn't hurt anyone. Just as bad as hurting somebody physically because God is after our heart. He's judging our intentions. Our heart can be just as black as somebody who has murdered somebody, right? Even though outwardly we look righteous because we're putting on a good religious show. Now, I'm not trying to send mixed messages here about judging and not judging. Um, It's our responsibility as Christians uh, to discern right teaching and to come alongside and bear one another's burdens and restore one another. But you'd better make sure that you've examined your life before you start looking into the lives of others and pointing out their faults. Better make sure you deal with the logs in your own eye, in your own life before you try to take out the speck in somebody else's. Here's an, another important caveat that I'm going to put on this. Do you have relationship with that person? Like, do you have permission to speak into their life? And here's what I mean. Jeff and I are friends, okay? And he's an elder in this church, but we're friends. If I see something in his life that goes against scripture, I have an open door to go up to him and confront him about it and vice versa. He has permission. If he sees something in Nathan's life that doesn't line up with scripture to come and smack me upside the head in love. We have relationship with each other. So we have an open door to speak into each other's lives. But if I see somebody who claims to be a Christian, I know they claim to be a Christian, but I don't have relationship with them and I pass judgment on them and I approach them to tell them what they're doing wrong, that's not going to be received very well. It's not going to end well because I don't have relationship with them. I'm not going to be able to wash that person's feet to use that metaphor I make judgment on them. I'm not coming at them to restore them, to wash their feet. I'm simply making a judgment on them. It's not going to go well. That's one of the things that the world hates. That's what they call us out on. Our good buddy James has this to say about being hypocritical. James 1.22, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, will be blessed in his doing. It's like holding up the mirror of the law, doing an inspection of your life. Yep, I fall short. I'm a sinner. And then we walk out the door and we forget all that stuff. And we start making judgments on other people instead of forgetting, you know what? I'm a sinner in need of grace and forgiveness. I'm in the same position. I don't need to judge other people that I have no right to speak into their life. I have no relationship with them. Either they're not a Christian or we have no permission to speak into their life because we don't even know them. Another great verse from James, James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Remember Noah, after Noah and them landed um, on Mount Ararat, wherever that is, um, the, one of the first things he did, because he was a man of the soil is what it tells us, he planted a vineyard. And one day, for whatever reason, probably because he was human, he had too much of his own wine to drink, and he passes out in his tent. Now, that's bad enough, but to add insult to injury, he was naked. He passed out in his tent, no clothes on, and his son Ham walks in, And he thinks it's funny. He has a good laugh because his father's passed out naked in the tent. And so he goes to find his brothers to tell them about it so that they can come see this crazy sight of their dad passed out. But Shem and Japheth didn't think it was funny. They thought it was sad. 
And they didn't want to expose their father's sin. They wanted to cover their father's sin. And so what they did was they went to the tent, they got a sheet, and they walked in backwards so that they could cover him up and not see his nakedness. They didn't want to expose it. They wanted to take care of it personally. That makes sense. And when his father woke up and found out what happened, he cursed Ham. Japheth and Shem and Japheth were blessed because of it, but Ham was cursed. Actually, he cursed Ham's descendants. It's weird. When he woke up and he heard what happened, he didn't actually curse Ham. He cursed his descendants. You know what Ham's son's name was? Canaan. Father of the Canaanites. They were cursed. They were the ones that the Jews were supposed to go in and wipe out the land of. Those were his descendants. All because he was seeking to expose sin instead of covering it up and not covering up in a bad way. What I mean is restoring, coming alongside and healing that personally. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 17.9, whoever covers up an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Lastly here, Jesus says something that's kind of out of place. It sounds like it's coming out of left field. Don't give dogs what's holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. I've never really understood that scripture. Here you're talking about logs and specks and, you know, being self-righteous and judgmental. And then all of a sudden he's talking about pigs and dogs. Pets in our day are kind of out of control. I'll be honest. They're out of control. Um, Now, don't don't leave the church because I said this. I, I like animals. Okay, I have two dogs that I like most of the time. But pets have gotten out of control. It is estimated that just last year, 2021, Americans spent $109 billion on their pets. $109 billion. That's a lot of chew toys. Imagine what we could do with $109 billion. But Jesus, in Jesus' day, people did not keep pets. If they had dogs, it was for working purposes. They would help, you know, round the sheep up or the livestock. They did not, they couldn't afford to keep pets, and they certainly um, didn't keep dogs. Very few people had the means to do so. So the majority of the dogs that you encountered were strays. They were scavengers, and you would find them at the city dump, and they were very dangerous. You didn't want to be around them. They despised the dogs. Um, Actually, they despised them so much that this is the word that they would use for Gentiles. They would call them dogs. Jesus says, don't give them what is holy. When you would take your sacrifice to the temple, whether it was a lamb or a goat or, you know, doves, they would place it on the altar. The altar was holy. Once it would, the sacrifice was placed on the altar, that was holy. And you couldn't just bring to God anything you wanted. It had to have been flawless. It had to be perfect. It couldn't have any imperfections on it. And Jesus is saying, you wouldn't cut that up. You wouldn't take that perfect sacrifice, cut it up, and throw it to dogs to argue over in the dirt. You wouldn't do that. They thought so little of dogs that that's what they called people who were non-Jewish. I talked about this before, but the Jewish men had this prayer that they would pray, saying, thank you, God, that you did not make me a woman or a slave or a dog. Basically, a Gentile. You didn't make me a Gentile, a a woman, or a slave. Really wonderful prayer, isn't it? Um, But that's what they would pray. There was this instance where Jesus is walking down the street, and there's a Canaanite woman who is walking after him. And she's shouting at him. She's shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And she's a Canaanite woman. And he's kind of ignoring her, and she keeps yelling this, have mercy on me, because her daughter was sick. She was demon-possessed. 
Now, she wasn't Jewish, but she was using this phrase, son of David, because she had either heard or she believed that he was the Messiah, that he was the one that was going to save God's people. And Jesus has a response that's pretty harsh. He says this, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's Jesus' response to this woman. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I'm ministering to the children of Israel. That's why I'm here. You're a Canaanite. Actually, you're not even supposed to be here because you guys were all supposed to have been wiped out, but they didn't get rid of all of you. You're a Canaanite woman. And then she replies. She has a great response. She says, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. And this blew Jesus away because she's saying, I know I'm an outsider. I know I am, but I'm placing myself under your leadership. I believe that you are the Messiah and even the dogs eat from the master's table. And Jesus said, that's amazing faith. You know what? Your daughter's healed. You got it. You answered correctly. Pretty amazing faith. Pigs, on the other hand, weren't just despised. They were forbidden. Uh, Pigs were classified as unclean, and that's kind of an understatement, right? They are dirty animals, but not just dirty. They were categorized as unclean because God had given Moses a whole list of animals that they were not supposed to eat, and pigs were at the top of that list. Thank God they're not anymore. Um, But they were at the time. You weren't supposed to eat them. In 168 BC, this is after Alexander the Great had died, and his whole empire got divided up between some of his generals, and there was a Greek king that was ruling over the region of Israel, and his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? Antiochus Epiphanes, and we'll talk about him more some other day, but he was basically a madman. He was crazy. He had given himself the name Epiphanes, which means God manifest. Isn't that wonderful? That's how much he thought of himself. He actually believed that he was Zeus in human form, reborn. So he was kind of a crazy guy. And the Jews, he hated the Jews, especially because they would not conform to the Greek way of life. And so one time he actually took a pig, went to the altar outside the temple, sacrificed the pig on the altar, desecrated it, then drugged the pig into the temple and started smearing pig's blood all over the temple. Desecrated. And then he made the priests eat the pig. That's how much this guy hated the Jews. And that was about the worst thing they could do. That's how bad pigs were in that culture. So you have dogs and you have pigs, both despised, both dangerous, especially if you got between them and their stuff. They could be very dangerous. Dogs and pigs, you ready? Dogs and pigs represent the unbelieving world. That's what they represent. Um, To the Jews, it was anybody who wasn't Jewish. To us, it's anybody who does not follow Jesus of the Bible. I'll call it that way. There is a Jesus of the Bible and there is a Jesus that other people worship that is not the, the Jesus of the scriptures. Anybody who does not. <clears throat> to us, it's the followers of Jesus. And he says, don't throw your pearls before the pigs. Pearls at the time being one of the most precious jewels that they could find. Again, Jesus is addressing self-righteous, judgmental behavior before the church. And there are certain truths, certain blessings of our faith that aren't to be shared with people of the world. And again, this sounds harsh, but there are spiritual dogs and spiritual pigs who care nothing for the things of God. They reject Jesus. They want nothing to do with him or his holiness. And we don't need to share some of our blessings, some of our truths of the faith with them. Why? Because they don't care. They don't care. Um, 
they are not going to appreciate being thrown a pearl of wisdom from the scriptures. When you quote scripture at them, they're probably going to attack you because they don't care. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Don't throw your pearls before pigs. Don't give what is holy to the dogs. The people that don't care about Jesus, why give that to them? This is what happens on Facebook, okay? Somebody says something, then you want to quote a verse at them or start engaging them with some type of scripture. Automatically, there's an attack coming. That's what he's talking about. Don't throw this stuff in front of people who don't care. It's not going to bear any kind of fruit. That's one of the reasons why Jesus taught in parables. Uh, People who were searching for the kingdom, people who wanted to get to know Jesus and get to know God better, it was given to them understanding, to be able to understand the stories that Jesus was telling. But for people who didn't care, they weren't seeking the kingdom, they really weren't that interested, it was just a silly story. That's all it was to them. And that's what Jesus told his disciples. Now, the temptation in that realization is to look down our noses at people who are not Christians, okay? Uh, Kind of in a Calvinistic kind of way. I'm saved and you're not. We don't gloat over our status. We don't gloat over our status as sons and daughters. We should be disappointed when people reject God, when they don't repent. If you remember Jesus, when he's riding into Jerusalem on the donkey right before Holy Week, he wept over Jerusalem because they had rejected him. He said, I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers his chicks. I wanted to gather you to myself, but you have rejected me. And now there's going to be judgment upon you because of that. And we should be sad when people reject God. We shouldn't be arrogant. But there are times where, and we just takes discernment, where you don't throw your pearls before swine, before people that are just going to argue. Why would you do that? When we unmercifully judge, condemning people, we have the wrong view of God, we have the wrong view of ourselves, and we have the wrong view of other people. We're to judge for identification and restoration, but we'd better make sure that we've examined our own lives first and dealt with the sin that's in us before we approach other people to restore them. Only God knows the whole story. Uh, Jesus is the only one who can judge perfectly because he was the one who took our judgment upon himself. Um, When the pioneers were crossing the West, uh, they made very slow progress, obviously. Uh, I can't even imagine. Can you? Going, going west in covered wagons with donkeys and oxen and going over rivers. I don't know how in the world they made it over rivers and going around you know, forests and all that kind of stuff. But when they made it to the prairies... Uh, they faced a real danger in the prairies, but it wasn't from wild animals and it wasn't from, you know, the Native Americans. It was actually from brush fires. It was from prairie fires, very dangerous at that time. And these prairie fires spread very rapidly. Um, I read that out in the open, these prairie fires could spread at 14 miles an hour. Now I looked up this morning, how fast can the average man run? About eight miles an hour. So you're in trouble if this thing gets on you and it's spreading fast. And so what they did, they had devised a plan because they wouldn't be able to get away quick enough. They devised a way to stay safe in the middle of the fire. What they would do is they would start a fire behind them. They would start a fire behind them, let that burn off a bigger enough um, you know, area. Then they would circle their wagons inside that space that they had already burned off and wait for the fire to come. And then the fire would burn around them and pass through because the fire couldn't go where the fire had already been. And that's what Jesus did for you and me. He took our punishment. He stood in that place. The fires of God's fury burned themselves out on Jesus. And now those that are standing in Christ, 
are saved because he stood in our place. On him, almighty vengeance fell, which could have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race and thus becomes our hiding place. It's a beautiful picture of a believer who's safe in Christ. When we're tempted to unmercifully judge people, we need to be reminded of the price that was paid for our sins. We judge for identification and for restoration, but not for condemnation. We can make discernments about what's being taught, but you got to know the scriptures first. I always tell you guys, always hammer that home. You got to be in the scriptures. You got to know the word. How can you make judgments if you don't really know the Bible? Then we judge for restoration. We come alongside people, but you better deal with the sin in your own life first. Then you can come along people that you have relationship with, that you have permission to speak into their life and say, this is what I see in you. I want to help you. I want to come alongside. I want to wash your feet, basically. And that's the way that we judge. But outside the church gang, and they're right, people outside the church are like, don't judge me. They're right. We shouldn't judge them. They don't have the same standards. They don't have the same beliefs as we do. We need the Holy Spirit to soften their hearts, to open them up. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. In the, in the church of Acts, people were being added to their number daily because they were getting together. They were breaking meals. They were praising the Lord. They were loving each other, bearing each other's burdens. That community is what blew people away. And they're like, I want to be part of a community like that. People don't want to be part of a community of what they see in the church, in our culture, because it's judgmental and it's coming down on them. If we want people to come into our church. We need to be those who love one another bear each other's burdens, aren't judgmental of people who don't share the same standards. This is one of the coolest things about Jesus. People knew he was a rabbi. He came alongside the sinners. And that's what they say. They're like, Jesus hung out with sinners. Yes, he did. But he didn't leave them that way. He didn't judge them. He loved them. And they said, man, that guy's a cripple. I want more of that in my life. And that's what they should, that's what they should feel when they're around you and I. Not judgment love and a desire to have what's inside of us. And that's what we bring to them. We say, you know what? I'll share with you what I got. Jesus is in my life. He's the one that's made me this way. He's the one that gives me hope. He's the one that helps me not to worry or be anxious about anything. And not judge you, but love you. And let you know there's something in your life that he can fix. He can take it away. That's how we bring people into the kingdom. Amen. I give you my worship.